If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the early 1940s, Aileen Griffith was a young woman working as a model in New York at one of Manhattan's most prestigious agencies, but she was desperate to join America's war effort. Soon, a twist of fate would see her posted to Spain at the height of World War II as part of the US Office of Strategic Services, where she would mingle with everyone from famous bullfighters, the rock stars of the day, to the highest rungs of the Spanish aristocracy. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Larry Loftus, the author of a new book, The Princess Spy, which tells Aileen's story. Putting the question to Larry was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your book is The Princess Spy, which covers the story of Aileen Griffith, who is a fascinating, fascinating character. And I wanted to start by asking, how did you come to Aileen's story? Typically, I find stories uh, while I'm researching other stories. I mean, I'm researching books about a spy or about something that happened during the war, and then I stumble across another name. This one, someone had mentioned to me uh, with the caveat, hey, I don't know if any of this is true, but there's a lot here. If half of it's true, it'd be a great book. So uh, that's where I started with this one. Of course, I had to do all the research to to find out what happened and what didn't happen and all the all the details. Okay, well, if I can pick up on that point of research then, we know from having talked about spies and espionage on this podcast before that it can often be tricky to dig out these stories. Indeed. How did that factor play a part in how you found out about Aileen? Well, with with most of, well, really, with all, all of the, the three spy books that I've done, Into the Lion's Mouth was about an MI6 agent, Dusko Popov, operating in Portugal, Second was codenamed Lease, an SOE agent operating in France, and then Aline Griffith, OSS agent operating in Spain. 
And so the, the, the best primary source is the archives because the archives, each agency has their own archives. Uh, these people submit reports, case officers submit reports, the agents submit reports, and that's at the time that they actually did it. So it's the most reliable. So that's the best place. So for a lane, uh, so I'm either the UK archives at Kew or I'm at the national US National Archives in College Park, Maryland, called National Archives 2. So those are the two places that I do uh, the best primary research. And then, of course, books that have been written on, written on the topic, I have to read those, of course. So with Aileen, she wrote a number of books. Um, two, were, two were straight nonfiction. One was straight fiction. Um, the nonfiction, The History of Pasquillette, which she had written about 24 years before she wrote her first spy memoir, and then the end of an epic, which she wrote kind of near the end of her life. And then she did a nonfiction article for the National Archives, for the U.S. National Archives here. Uh, it was an OSS, basically a compilation of OSS people who had been in different areas. And her article was about Spain. So those, those were the three nonfiction. And then her, and then Elaine wrote three memoirs, which fall in between. They were written as memoirs, but they were historical fiction. I mean, that the, the overarching picture was absolutely true. She was a spy. She was a very good spy operating in Spain. Um, but she made up a lot of stuff. She made up, between the three books, there are nine murders or killings, and she made up eight of them. The, uh, the other one, the ninth one, I, I know happened because I found the person, actually, all the, all the players are dead, of course, but I found the two sons of her, of Aileen's coding partner in the coding room in, in Madrid, Robert Dunev was this man's name, and uh, he's the one that actually removed the body from from the one that was true. So I found that out because the sons had said, "Hey, our dad wrote this memoir. It's about a hundred pages. It was never published. It wasn't for publication. It was just for us, just for the family. Do you want to see it?" So I said, "Sure, absolutely." Uh, and it was great. I mean, it was his detail about what he did during the war. And, you know, I jumped when one I'm reading on one page and it says, which reminds me of the night that I removed the body from Aileen's apartment. So um, so that one was true. The others she 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 made up. So um, my job is is to find out what really happened. And the main place that, that I get that information is in the um, is in the archives. Yeah, there's a huge amount of evidence to sift through there and it, it makes for a really compelling account. And I, I wondered if we could give a bit more context to the early stages of Aileen's story and talk about how she got recruited by this service, the OSS. Sure. She had just, Aileen had just graduated from college. She was from a small town, a little hamlet outside of New York City called Pearl River. It's one of those like one stop sign, one post office, one grocery, one school, she goes to the same school all 12 years of school. Um, and so after the war, she's looking for something to do. Her brothers had joined the war and she wanted to join the war. But what's she going to do? She's a, she's a young girl. She just graduated from, job, from college. She doesn't have any job skills yet. So she takes a job in Manhattan uh, as a model. She's very beautiful. She was 5'9 and beautiful. And so she took a job with Hattie Carnegie, which was the top, probably the top modeling agency in the country at the time. And uh, Lucille Ball, for example, had started there. 
Uh, and so Elaine starts working there, and it's you, you would think it's a dream job. She's well-paid. She gets all the best clothes in the world. She gets to hobnob with, with, with exciting people. Uh, she's in the spotlight. She's in magazines. But that, that's not really what she wanted to do. So what happens is she goes to a dinner party. She's invited to a dinner party, uh, and she has a blind date. And the blind date happens to be, lo and behold, she doesn't know this, but a man named Frank Ryan. Well, Frank Ryan was the OSS person in charge of the Iberian Peninsula, so all of Spain, all of Portugal. And so when they're talking, he says, oh, so do you want to be a famous model? And she goes, oh, no, I don't, I, I don't really like modeling. I, I want to get into the war. I want to help the war effort. He's like, really? Well, why? Well, my brothers are in the war, and I, and I want to do something too. I don't, you know, I, I'm a woman. I don't know what I could do, but I, I want to do something to help. And he says, "Well, so basically, he starts interviewing her. You know, she has no idea who he is. So he says, "Well, Elaine, what do you speak any foreign languages?" And she says, "Well, I'm pretty fluent in Spanish, and I've got a working knowledge of French." And of course, his ears perk up when she says, "I'm fluent in Spanish." because he needs Spanish agents. So when she says that, he continues to interview her through the evening. And then at the end of dinner, he says, well, look, if, if a gentleman by the name of Tomlinson calls you, uh, you'll know what it's about. He might be able to help you to, quote unquote, find something to do in the war. Well, that find something to do, of course, is with the OSS, because a Tomlinson does call. I'm sure that's not his real name. It was an alias. He tells her to meet, meet me at the Biltmore Hotel tomorrow at six o'clock. Uh, I'll be wearing a white carnation on my, you know, very like James Bondish, I'll be wearing a white carnation. And so he meets her and, and talks to her and basically continues to interview her. And while well, they send her off, they send her off to this place called The Farm, which was a hundred acre complex outside of D.C. where the OSS trained their operatives. Uh, it's a three week program. Now, when she arrives, she doesn't know yet what she's doing. It's just, quote unquote, something for the war. And then when she gets there, she finds out this is where this is where the Americans are grooming spies and she's going to be groomed to be a spy to work in Spain. So it's a very intensive three week program. In fact, I, I pulled out this is the schedule. This is the first week of the schedule that she has. And I've highlighted a number of things, weapons, co close combat, organizing chains, weapons again. But down here at the bottom, my favorite one. So Aileen, through these classes, through three weeks, every day she's on the firing range. She shoots every gun, handguns, pistols, uh, Mausers, uh, you name it, Lugers. Uh, and then she upgrades now to the rifles. So she's shooting all the carbines and, and, and the rifles. And then she goes to the machine guns. So she's practicing on, on a German MG42, a U.S. Tommy gun. So she uses all of the guns. And then, as I just showed you, she has to learn knife fighting by the man who invented the most famous knife ever invented called the Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife, used by special forces still today around the world. So he teaches her how to fire all the guns, how to, how to handle a knife, how to kill people with a knife. And then his specialty was the art of the silent kill, which I detail in Into the Lion's Mouth. But he taught his operatives how to kill with their bare hands. So she learned that as well. So all of that is sort of her training to get her ready to go to Spain. Even though it's a neutral country, there was potential danger. And, and the OSS and the SOE and, 
and MI6 trained all of their spies with this practical, with weapons, with hand-to-hand fighting and knives and so forth. So that's her training before she goes to Spain. Yes, it's certainly intensive. And I loved reading about that baptism of fire that she goes through. Can we talk a little bit more about Spain and the situation that she finds herself posted to? You mentioned it was a neutral country. Right. But what, what makes Spain and particularly Madrid this, this hotbed that Aileen finds herself in? And during World War II, there are only four neutral countries. And those four countries are Portugal, Spain, Turkey, and Sweden. That's it. Of the four, Spain uh, Spain and Portugal were the most important. And the most important cities were Madrid and Lisbon. And of the two, Madrid was the most important. For a number of reasons, that's where the Germans had their largest contingent. uh, And that's where information, when it came across France, had to go through Spain before it went anyplace else. So people that are sneaking across the Pyrenees in the French resistance or SOE operatives, when they come across the Pyrenees, they've got to secretly make it to Madrid so that the Americans can hide them, put them in the, the back, the trunk of a, of a car with diplomatic plates and take them to Gibraltar if they want to fly them out. So that, that, uh, so Madrid is the hub for everybody. So every country had spies there. Uh, Popoff's case officer, when he was in Portugal, was a German abwar agent by the name of Johann, Johann Jepsen. And Jepsen told him, by the way, when we go to Madrid, because they went to Madrid several times, when we go to Madrid, we're going to go to this place called Horchers. It's a German restaurant owned by Germans. Uh, they're on the vases. You got to be careful what you say because on the vases they have secret microphones hidden, and they're recording. Uh, so he was told this. Papa was told this, and this is in a in a neutral country at this restaurant. But it's the nicest restaurant in town. It's a famous restaurant, still there today. Uh, and they went to an Aileen went to another German restaurant as well called Edelweiss. So she's go- so even though it's a neutral country the place is swarming with spies and Jepson had told Popov look uh there are about 420 german agents or informants here just in madrid so you have to be careful it could be a bellman it could be a porter it could be a bartender it could be anybody so you have to be careful what you say and who you say it around so that's the that that's sort of the scenario that she walks into, and and there's a, a kind of a sinister looking German who's sort of the most powerful there at the time, named Hans Lazar, who the OSS had a big file on. Lazar was their ostensibly their 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 press agent, their press secretary, but he was very active in in espionage because he had himself, uh, at, at one time, I think, uh, like a hundred sub-agents that worked for him, either to collect information or to, uh, or as informants. And the Germans had set up about 3,000 fake companies in Spain, and in particularly in Madrid, to help the espionage effort. So all this is stuff is going on. So it, when, when, when something happens in France or anywhere in Europe, it's cabled. You know, the Germans cable it to Madrid, the Americans cable it to Madrid, the British cable it to Madrid. And of course, each, each country has their own radio and, and, and their code. So Aileen is sent for this purpose. Aileen is sent to Madrid as a coder. And so what that means, uh, she's in this room mainly with Robert Dunev. There are other coders come in later, but mainly it's her and Robert Dunev. 
So when a message comes in from the French resistance that says, hey, we just saw 20 Panzer tanks here. We, we just saw five German cruisers, battleships, whatever, here. Uh, we just saw troop movements here. They would, they would cable that to Madrid, and then Elaine would have to um, collect the information. It's all in code, so she has to decode it to figure out what it says. And then she has to recode it to send it out to whoever's supposed to get it. So, you know, using the examples I gave you, you know, it might be a, a cable that would eventually go out to Montgomery or to Patton to attack, you know, the, the Panzers that they found or, or the RAF's going to make a bombing run over what they found. So it was very important information. It, it needed to be very timely. So Elaine and Robert were on call. One of them would be on call through the night. So at three o'clock in the morning, they might get a phone call, got a cable. So they have to go in at three o'clock in the morning decode it, recode it, send it out, you know, go to the State Department, go to the various places. So it was a non, it was kind of an intense nonstop job because they had, they coded during the day and then they were on call. One of them was on call every night for, for decoding what could possibly come in. And after she's there about a year, the OS, her bosses figure out, hey, she's very talented. She could probably do more than just coding. And so they doubled up on, on what she could do. They actually also made her a field agent. The, you know, she went in as a, as a person that's going to work in a little room and just code and decode all day. But they sort of upgraded her to also be a field agent like a James Bond, where you go out and you collect information from people, places. You go to parties. You go to diplomat parties. You, she, would, she would go to the parties of this uh, gentleman that I mentioned, Prince uh, von Hohenlohe. Uh, to collect information. Is this person a Nazi? Is this person a collaborator? Is this person a German operative? Uh, so she's called to do... Now, she doesn't give up her day job, which is as a coder, and she's still on call at night. So on the weekends and on the nights when she's not on call, she's out going to stuff. She's going to parties. She's going to dinners. Uh, they paired her with this very whimsical almost Don Quixote-like character named um, Edmundo LaSalle. And so he would go out with her. And it would look so that it would look normal because when you go to dinner, typically you go as a couple. So she would go with Edmundo LaSalle and it looks like a couple having dinner. Well, he's an OSHS agent as well. His cover was as um, he worked, and he really did work for them, for Walt Disney Company. Uh, he He was a Disney employee and had a Disney contract. Lo and behold, what you know, the, anyone else cannot see is that the OSS had a secret deal with Disney, and they they reimbursed Disney under the table to repay what Disney was paying to Edmundo. But they wanted real work, even though he was uh, the full time operative. They wanted real work for him um, as a um, as a Spanish, uh, basically their liaison for getting films into Spain and Portugal. So anyway, so those are her Elaine's two jobs: uh, the the actual coding and then the going out as a field agent with Edmundo Lozau, or sometimes on her own. She would go to bullfights. She she met these famous bullfighters, who were a great source of information, could open any door. So that she did all of that. Yes, I did want to talk about some of these particular relationships because I think Juanita Belmonte is one of the more larger than life characters in this account. And is it fair to say that she really pushed the buttons of this relationship? She really did, but she was she was caught in a hard place because Juanita Belmonte was a rock star. 
I mean, that, if you're in the U.S. and you say, hey, I've, I've got the chance to go to dinner with Tom Cruise, you know, I mean, if the person is a celebrity, they can open a lot of doors. You, you, you never have to wait in line for anything. You get the best tickets. You can meet anybody that you want. So Juanito was a famous bullfighter. His dad, his father, in fact, was maybe the greatest, probably the greatest bullfighter ever. There was really only three in that in that conversation, and it was Juan Belmonte, his father, uh, a bullfighter that uh, that Hemingway wrote about quite a bit, Joselito, and then later the third one is in in Aileen's day, and Aileen meets and becomes friends with him. This bullfighter named Manolit. But so those were the three greatest in history. But Juan Belmonte, Juanito's father, was really famous because he's the one that introduced the modern day bullfighting, where you stand close to the bull, you make the bull work around you. You have to be, you have to look like a ballerina. I mean, you have to look like a ballerina, show no fear, be totally calm, and and be graceful. Whereas beforehand, everything they would jump out of the way, they were running around the ring. You know, it was a mad, it was a madman circle. But uh, Juanito changed all that, so he became the father of bullfighting. So Juanito, his son, Juan's son, uh, is famous. So dad retires, so Juanito's now the active. He's a rock star, and Aileen, he, he, he meets Aileen, he's smitten by her immediately. He's sending her flowers, he's sending her chocolates, he wants her to go out on a chocolate date where they go to this famous chocolatier uh, so she can get the best chocolates in the world. And he's really just smitten by her. She's not smitten by him. I mean, number one, she's probably about seven inches taller than he is. But um, she isn't really smitten by him. She, she, they become good friends. He, of course, I think falls in love with her. And she doesn't want to hurt him. And she really kind of needs him to open doors and to go to things and to meet people. So she tries to balance those two she, without leading him on romantically but yet going out with him whenever he says, hey, let's go to dinner, let's go to lunch, let's go to a bullfight, let's go to whatever. So she would go with him and just try to keep the, eventually he got the message. Eventually he got the message that she's not romantically involved in him. But through the story of, through, uh, through the, story of the Princess Bai, there's actually four suitors. And so there, while she's doing all this espionage, you have this romance undercurrent going on with four different men. First is Juanita, who she has zero interest in. Then there's um, a, a mysterious character named Pierre who is comes and goes, an OSS agent, disappears. He had trained with her at the farm, and, and then he shows up in Madrid. They had kind of, she was smitten with him, he was smitten with her, but he was mysterious. She wasn't even sure she could trust him. Um, he ends up disappearing, probably going to France. And then the third one is maybe the most, the, the coolest character in the story is an American diplomat named Barnaby Conrad, who was the youngest diplomat ever. He's only 21 when he was sent to Seville as a vice consul. And so he's a diplomat. He had been trained, little did Aileen know, he had been trained as a coder as well in Washington. But so he's a diplomat uh, and, and decides he had kind of started this right before he went to the to Spain. He wanted to be a bullfighter, too. So he starts training as a bullfighter and becomes a bullfighter. And he comes into the picture because Eileen's arrested. Eileen goes on. She has a mission. She's supposed to take some some uh, secret information. Uh, I think it was on Microfish to uh, this other person. They're going to meet in the back of a church. They've got these codes. He's going to show up on you know the back pew. You need to slip him 
this information, this is people, this is from the French resistance. Basically, lives are at stake because the French resistance had to have a chain of safe houses and safe people so that you could go from wherever, Paris, all the way to Madrid. And you, they needed safe houses all the way through that. And there's, there's, I mean, I saw the files of just the chains, what were called chains, of people and houses. And there were thousands, thousands of names. Um, so Aileen's information that she's carrying is very important. And when she's on the train, uh, a policeman knocks on her door, passport, please. Okay, uh, now your permit, your travel permit. What permit? I don't have a permit. Uh, she'd been warned of this. They thought she could probably get by because of her age, but she didn't get by because of her age. So she's arrested. She's arrested, and they lock her up in jail in, in Malaga. And uh, she's missing the appointment to deliver this very important information. And the clock's ticking. You know, they had three different drop dates in case something happened. The first one goes by, second goes by. She's looking at her watch. Anyway, the guy that has to vouch for her is this American Vice Consul Barnaby Conrad. So he shows up to sort of bail her out of jail. Well, it finds out, my gosh, it's a beautiful, Eileen was about 22 at the time, 23, gorgeous, you know, had been a professional model. So he's smitten by her. So he invites her immediately to go to lunch with him and then dinner. So he's in the mix now, (laughs) if you will, on the romantic hunt. But the man that she falls in love with and eventually marries is a man by the name of Luis Figueroa, who, lo and behold, she has no idea, but is famous, and his family's famous. The, he, he uh, at the time, um, was, the, uh, was the Count of Quintanilla, and he becomes the Count of Romanones, which was a very famous name, uh, and still is today. And the, the, Luis's grandfather was the current Count of Romanones, that when he died, it would pass to his father and then to Luis. But he had been the prime minister of Spain three times. He was King Alfonso's principal advisor, very famous man and a beloved family. So Aileen doesn't know this. And they were also extremely wealthy. Aileen doesn't know this. She just knows this is a handsome guy. He's polite. He's sharp. He uh, he speaks perfect English. She didn't think that he was Spanish. He had like like brown hair, green eyes, and perfect English. So she didn't think that he was Spanish, and she wasn't sure. And they met kind of a, in a very ominous way. And I won't spoil. A, I won't throw out the spoiler here. But in the book, you'll see that they're they meet in an ominous way, and she has no idea who this particular man is, and she's kind of scared of him. But anyway, that so that's the love story that does develop and works its way through as the as the espionage sort of tails off, the romance picks up, and they sort of cross. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She was a very good agent. In fact, she filed more reports in Madrid than any other Madrid agent. She filed 59, and she did it in the span of about six months, which was means she was very busy every single day, night, day. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I also wanted to ask about her work that she conducted mixing in these circles as a spy. Right. Can the success of her work be quantified in any way? Are, are we able to say how successful she was at all? Right. It's It's virtually impossible to quantify uh, the, the work of a spy um, and, and to say, well, you know, this helped the war and that helped the war because they're doing their part. I mean, there's there's a you're a machine gunner on a on a ship. You know, you're doing your part for that particular job, uh, with the exception of Popoff, who was bigger than life. I mean, he had more subagents than anybody. He accomplished more than anybody. He warned the U.S. about the Pearl Harbor attack in August of 41. He was the primary guy to deceive the Germans about the Normandy invasion, convinced them that it was coming at Pas-de-Calais, which saved countless thousands of lives. So so that you can quantify because you know that he was the main guy that deceived them, and that surely saved a couple of thousand lives. With all other spies, you can't really say, well, they saved this amount of lives or they accomplished uh, this particular thing, but they all did their part. And Elaine did a very good agent. In fact, she filed more reports in Madrid than any other Madrid agent. She filed 59 and she did it in the span of about six months, which was means she was very busy every single day, night, day. So she filed all of these reports uh, and each report, you know, does something else. It notifies the OSS, this person, I think, is a spy. This person is, is an informant. I've hired two sub-agents. Aileen hired two sub-agents to work under her. Uh, and there were a couple more that were coming before they closed the office down. Uh, Flamenco was one, and, and, and they paid her uh, because it was dangerous. And so she's responsible now for her, a couple of her own sub-agents, um, and then eventually they, the U.S. puts her on a, a very important task with Edmundo LaSalle, and it was a project called Safe Haven. Safe Haven was the code name for a critical operation to catch German money and people coming through the pipeline. So what happens towards the end of the war, Germany knows they're, they're going to lose the war. Uh, the Nazis know. So what they try to do is, number one, get the loot out, all the loot that they've stolen, the money, the paintings, the the priceless things. They want to try to sneak that out and get it through Spain to on a ship to go to Argentina, primarily. Uh, Likewise, there are a number of war criminals, you know, these (laughs) Nazi war criminals that know if I get caught, they're going to hang me. So all those uh, Germans are trying to get out. Well, safe haven was to catch them, to, to catch the people, to catch the art, to, to, to catch the money, to find out where the money's going. And they had a feeling that there were agents, conduits. They, the X2 office felt that Hohenlohe was probably the conduit to get some of this money from Madrid to Mexico uh, because he had contacts. He had two homes in Mexico and he had significant contacts in Mexico. So as part of Safe Haven, they send her to this, she has this massive thinker, this, it's like a castle, um, and, and it's this huge party. And so they send Aileen there to find out if there are any Mexicans there, because they're really thinking he's getting this money out of Spain into Mexico, and we've got to trap it, we've got to stop it. And so she's there to look for Mexicans, and so she does a report. 
there weren't, you know, there's maybe 150 people there. She says there weren't any Mexicans. However, in his office, so she just kind of snoops around the house. She says around the house, I found multiple pictures of him with Mexican bullfighters. So they knew that he had a strong connection to Mexico. So anyway, so she goes out all the time, files these reports, uh, and is a very good agent. Every agent had their own little thing to do. Uh, Edmundo LaSalle uh, operated in, in, in Barcelona for a while, then worked with Aileen in Madrid. They together worked on Operation um, Safe Haven. Uh, Robert Dunev had an alias. He had his own separate identity as a Spaniard where he was supposed to do stuff on the side. So they all had these little projects and things that they all were supposed to do. But of all of the agents, because I had to go through every single file, you know, in the National Archives, I, I was astounded to see that Aileen had 59 reports, which is not only more than anybody else, probably more than all the others combined. I mean, it was a lot. Right. And it's clearly very vital work and it seems like she was prolific. But but then if we go to her after the war and going back to what you mentioned about her own writing, it's clearly a world that was already filled with glamour and twists and turns. So what happens there with her own writing? Well, l- let's back up and talk about what, what actually happened after the war, because that's a whole nother. I mean, that could almost be its own book. I mean, I covered in The Princess Spy, but sure. There's there's a whole nother very secretive, very important operation. When when Roosevelt dies, President Truman becomes our, the U.S. president, and Truman does not like foreign intelligence. He doesn't like the OSS. So at the when the war in Europe ends, he tells the OSS, "You guys have to close down. I, I don't think it's important for us to have foreign intelligence." So the Madrid office has an order to close the office by August 15, 1945. That means everybody's out of the office, everybody goes home. And so they did that. So they closed the the office. The OSS people, though, knew that was absolutely crazy. You can't close down your espionage service. You can't close down your intelligence service. And so the three top espionage people and Western allies decided to do something. And those three people were William Donovan, General William Donovan, who was head of the OSS, uh, William Stevenson, who was head of the BSC, the British Security Coordination, which is MI6 operating in the U.S. and Canada, and then the SOE chief, Charles Hambro, uh, on the British side. Those were the three top espionage uh, organizations, if you will, not including uh, Stuart Menzies at MI6, but those three decided we, we need to do something. So a corporation is secret right after, like like three weeks after the OSS closes the office in August. So in September, there is this company formed in Panama. I can tell you as a former corporate lawyer that the only reason that you would incorporate in Panama is to hide it, which they did. It was headquartered in New York City, incorporated in Panama. So that company was called the British American Canadian Corporation. Canadian is Stevenson, uh, British is Hambro, and American is Donovan. So it was named after basically the three founders from these espionage services. And then they started hiring other people, all from the intelligence community. For example, the person that they picked to run the company is actually Aileen's boss. I mean, the guy who recruited her, Frank Ryan, that's who they tap to run this thing, who had been the OSS in charge of the Iberian Peninsula. 
And then they bring in for different offices, they, they bring in, uh, and this is all done on the slide. This, this entity was to assist trade. That, that was the, it was the cover, uh, and, but they actually did it. I mean, in all good covers, you actually do the business that your cover is. So the cover was international trade. What I point out in the book is, ironically enough, all of the people involved in the company, all of the founders, all of the people on the board, not one of them has anything experience in international trade. None. So, uh, so you've got all those founders, the Mellon family, i.e. from Larry Mellon, who worked in the Madrid office with Aileen. The Mellon family is one of the financial backers of this entity. They tap other people. In, in, in my book on Popov, he talks about an MI6 agent that flew with him when he went to the U.S. That MI6 agent's name was John Pepper. Oh, John Pepper's on the board of this of this new entity. So they bring in all of these people. And after the war, Frank Ryan says to Aileen privately, oh, by the way, you know, we have to close the office, but uh, we're going to form a new organization. He doesn't say who we are. We're going to form a new organization. We want you to be a part of it. You're very important. We want you to help. And in fact, you're going to open the Madrid office. She's already in Madrid. So she opens the Madrid office for this mysterious company and has to do real work. She has to do real trade there with with cotton dealers and so forth. Um, And then he sends her after that, he sends her to open help open the office in Paris. And from Paris, she's supposed to help open the office in Zurich. Uh, Meanwhile, other SOS, former OSS agents are opening offices in other places. So all of this is happening while her romance is accelerating with Luis. So you've got this tension. She keeps getting more important uh, work from her boss, Frank Ryan, and and is literally in charge of opening uh, the Madrid office and opening the Zurich office by herself. So this very important work. Meanwhile, she's in love with Luis, and they want to get married. So you have this tension where she kind of wants to leave. She can't tell... Uh, Luis, that that she works, you know, she's a spy, has been a spy, and well, works for this new entity. Uh, and so he wants her just to come back to Spain and stay in Spain, but he hasn't proposed. And so she's like, look, I've got no commitment. I've got no ring, no, no engagement. So she won't give up her quote unquote day job. And so you, this tension builds. She can't tell him that she's a spy. She can't tell him what she's doing. All she can say is, I have this important company. I really like my job, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, come on, Aileen, you don't need to work. Let's get married. And only literally at the end of the story does she find out who he is, you know, because he doesn't, she she kind of wonders, why doesn't he have to go to work every day like everybody else? You know, you run off to your office first thing in the morning and, and he didn't, and she couldn't figure out why. So, so towards the end of the story, she learns who he is because he had a different name. His last name is Figueroa. Well, the famous person is Roman Owens. That's a different name, but that's a title. That's a title, not a name. So the end, towards the end of the story, she figures out who he is, and she's kind of blown away uh, that he's this famous person from this famous family that's very important, that's very wealthy, uh, much beloved in Spain. Um, so anyway, that, 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 that progresses. And then towards the, at the very end, when they're about to get married, um, Aileen knows I have to tell him, I have to get this off my chest. So she has to tell him, look, I, during the war, you know, when you, when you were courting me, I was a Spain for, I was a spy for the Americans. And so he, she feels like she has to tell him, she does tell him and lo and behold, he doesn't believe her. 
he just starts laughing. Oh, come on, Eileen, you are not. You, you are such a liar, you know? And so he just, he just shrugs it off. And she's like, okay, I'm off the hook. I've told him. And so it, it doesn't come up again because he didn't believe her on that one instance. So she doesn't have to tell him from then on. So pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. It's quite the climax to an incredible life, an incredible period of her life. Right. And as you've already alluded to, she does start writing about this fairly early on, is it fair to say? Well, she, and as I mentioned earlier, she started with a book called The History of Pasquillette. And that was, uh, that was published, I'm doing this by memory, it was like 1964 or something like that. And it was about a finca uh, from Louisa's family that she was renovating. And but in the very front of it, at the very beginning of the book, she uh, she accurately says that I was a uh, a Spain. I mean, I was a spy. I came to here's why I came to Spain. Um, I landed in in um, uh, February of of uh, um, 1944, and I uh, I went from Lisbon to Madrid, which she did. Uh, and she gives her real code name, which was Butch. That was her real code name. That's what's in all the files. And so later, when she decides to do the spy books, then you know they're, <laughs> they're, they're no holds are barred. She just they they change her code name. They make it Tiger. Her uh, and and I found out the reason her publisher did that. Her editor did that because they didn't want the book to be. They didn't. It didn't sound very glamorous for this beautiful model to have the co- code name of Butch. So they changed it to Tiger. And Aileen may have given him that name because what I found in the files was the Madrid office did have an agent codenamed Tiger. Uh, He was there for a short while, uh, and then he got in some trouble, and they had to to get him out of Dodge. There was a raid. It's a long story, but they had to get him out of Dodge. So Tiger splits, disappears from Madrid. They sneak him away. Uh, Well, Aileen borrowed the name, so she uses that name for her codename. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the framework is true. I mean, she was a spy. She went from Lisbon to Madrid, worked in Madrid. Um, and then, um, but she, she, maybe the editor asked her to do this. I don't know, but she made up, uh, all, all of the really exciting, most of the exciting stuff. I mean, she really was arrested in Malaga, which she covers in her nonfiction article for, for the national archives. Uh, and that, so the, so the arrest in, 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 in Malaga and uh, Barnaby Conrad, Balin, Ralph—that that's all true. That really happened. But the murders, and you know, she had said in her first book that her partner Edmundo LaSalle had murdered a man right in front of her with at the casino in the middle of a crowd, knife to the back. Well, <laughs> preposterous. Edmundo LaSalle wasn't even in the country until six months later. He 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 doesn't even arrive in. Um, in, in Lisbon until uh, the very end of May, beginning of June, is when he arrives. So Aileen later, and she changes all the dates. This is supposed to happen uh, on uh, New Year's Eve, and she was and she wasn't there yet either. I mean, she doesn't even she doesn't even get on the plane to go to uh, Lisbon and Madrid until January twenty seven. So for whatever reason, she felt at liberty to make up dates and events and things. But Edmundo LaSalle's daughter and brother-in-law were, were a little upset that they that she had made up that this person's uh, that 
Edmundo LaSalle's daughter was was kind of upset that Elaine said, oh, he murdered somebody, you know, in a casino. Uh, so anyway, so I so in the book, I, I lay out what actually did happen. And someone counted. There's actually 60 pages of endnotes. So if you want to go back and look at where did stuff come from, every bit of dialogue comes from a primary source in, in, in a nonfiction work. I believe uh, in a scholarly nonfiction work, you can't make up anything. You can't make up dialogue. So everything is verbatim, either from a report that was filed or from um, something that was in a primary source that, that I felt was trustworthy. So as a lawyer, I, I, I you know, through 25 years of practice, I, I was used to sifting through evidence because lawyers have to decide what's true, what's not true. We have conflicting stories. Lawyers have evidentiary rules that they apply as to what evidence has a higher priority, what's more believable. Certain things have conflicts of interest. Certain things are hearsay. So I have to work through that hierarchy to figure out what what actually happened. And then, of course, the the uh, the final verdict. If there's something in the archives, then that's you've you've got it. I mean, you've got a, a written report. So that's my job. Right. Excellent. Well, it, it does sound like Aileen took her fair share of liberties, but also it's it's a re- really remarkable life that is captured in your book, The Princess Spy. Uh, And thank you so much, Larry, for your time in talking to us about Aileen Griffith today. Well, thanks for having me. That was Larry Loftus, The Princess Spy, the true story of World War II spy Aileen Griffith, Countess of Romanones, is published by Atria Books and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in next on Friday when Anne Seber will be speaking about the Cold War case of Ethel Rosenberg. This week is Medieval Kings and Queens Week on HistoryExtra.com, in which we'll be exploring the lives of famous monarchs, the realities of rulership, and the secrets of surviving on the throne. To find out more, visit HistoryExtra.com and click on the banner on our homepage.